What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases, to historic kidnapping, to gangsters, and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease, and on today's episode of Murder Monday, we dive into the murder of Karen Gregory. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible, for sponsoring this episode. Audible is a massive library of audiobooks from every genre. They've got everything from the latest bestsellers to those old classics you've always wanted to read but just never got around to it. And they've got a huge range of genres. Romance, mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, biography, whatever floats your boat. It's super easy to get started with Audible too. All you need is an internet connection, a smartphone, tablet, PC, Apple. You can listen to at home at work, on the train, during your commute, at the airport, walking your dog, you get the picture. It's endless content for endless moments in life. If you want a free three-month trial and a free audiobook of your choice, head on over to audibletrial.com slash Larry21. Use the link in the description and help support the show. And now on to today's topic. In 1984, Karen was a 36-year-old graphic artist who was finishing up moving in with her boyfriend, David Mackey. According to friends and family, Karen was what you would call feisty and a free spirit. She had taught elementary school art, been a potter, and bartended in a local restaurant in St. Petersburg, before working as a graphic artist for Datacom Associates. 
Everyone agreed that she loved talking on the phone. She apparently ran up bills on long-distance phone calls. She was a vegetarian, and her favorite movie was Black Orpheus. Karen was born in Albany, New York. She had moved to Pinellas County, Florida in 1983 from New Hampshire, and she loved it. She loved the sand, the sun, and tourism. Karen met David in Florida. Karen actually called David first. All of their friends were saying how in love the two were. Disgusting, but in the best way. And they decided they should move in together. The events of this story really start on May 22, 1984. Karen had been moving uh, some things from the apartment she had been renting with Anita Kilpatrick to what was supposed to be her new home in a quiet neighborhood with her boyfriend David Mackey in Gulfport, Florida. David was out of town in Rhode Island speaking at a conference, so Karen had the house to herself. Karen then met her friend Navirn Covington at her house for dinner around 8 p.m. The pair had a grand time drinking white wine and laughing and talking. Karen told her that she loved her job and David and how excited she was about her life. It all sounds like a great girl's night. This dinner makes what happened next even more tragic. Between 12 p.m. and 1 a.m. on May 23, 1984, Karen left Laverne's house to head to her new home. Not long after, several of her neighbors heard a scream. At least 16 neighbors on a two-block radius around Karen's home reported hearing a scream. Arthur Culper described it as a short, agonizing scream. He remembers it was 1.15 a.m. Glenda Harness lived catty-cornered from Karen and David's Gulfport home. She also heard the scream and looked out of her kitchen window. Her boyfriend, George Lewis, had been working in the garage, which he often did. But the garage light was off, and Glenda could not see George. Obviously, this scared Glenda, but 20 minutes later, George came into the house and the couple went to bed. Martha Berkowitzki lived right across the street, and she also heard a scream, followed by a door slamming. She didn't think the scream was the one of a person in danger. How many of these neighbors called the police? Absolutely zero. I mean, I get it. When you hear something like that, you try to rationalize it away. Who wants to think their neighbor is being murdered next door? But, like a detective on the case later wondered, if someone had called that night, would they have been able to save Karen? Would they have caught the killer sooner? Questions that I mentioned kept those neighbors awake at night for years to come. Here's what's really odd about no one calling the police. This neighbor had a very active neighborhood watch that was led by George Lewis, who had been working in his garage that night. The captain of the neighborhood watch didn't call the police. George was also a firefighter and very friendly with police. The lead investigator even officiated his wedding to Glenda after Karen's death. George had been working in his garage with the door open but the radio on. George said he heard the scream, but that it was faint. He said he went into the street to look for a few minutes but didn't see anything suspicious and went back inside. And the next night, May 23, 1984. Martha Berkowitzki, who lived across the street, noticed that the front door to David and Karen's house was open. It was a Chalouise door, which I've never heard of, but it just means there are a slide of slats of glass that you can open kind of like blinds. Sometimes after, sometime after Martha noticed the door being opened, a friend of Karen's and David's came to the house. He said that Karen had invited him over for dinner, but no one came to the door, so he left a note on David's car. It said, Karen and David, hello. Stopped by about 7.15 or so, but saw no signs of life. 
Many to do tonight, so I probably won't be back, but I have something you wanted. We'll be home, not too late. No sign of life? That's creepy, right? Put in a pin in that note because it will come up again. David tried to call Karen from Rhode Island, but she didn't answer and he began to worry. So he called Karen's old roommate, Anita Kilpatrick, to see if she had seen Karen. She hadn't. David also checked with Karen's sister, and she also hadn't seen her. David has to be really panicking at this point. Just as a side note, I think we take for granted how easy it is to contact someone in 2022. You can call them, text them, DM them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can shoot them an email or tag them in a TikTok video. In 1984, all they had were landlines, and David was too far away to check on Karen himself. The next morning, May 24th, 1984. David called Karen again early the next morning, hoping to catch her before she left for work. She didn't answer. Then he called Karen's work, who told him that Karen hadn't shown up that day or the day before. So now David calls Anita back, this time even more upset and worried. Karen agreed with him, so David called Amy Bressler, a neighbor, and asked her to see if Karen's car was in the driveway. Amy said that it was, so David asked her to go check on Karen. Amy knocked on the side door but got no answer. Then she tried the front door, you know, the one with the glass uh, slits that are like a blinds. She noticed some glass had been broken out of the door. The glass was scattered on the sidewalk. Not good, right? Amy looked throughout the window into the bedroom where she could see an unmade bed in the lower half of a woman's body that was covered in dried blood. She couldn't see the woman's face, but it was Karen. The next time David called his home phone, a police detective answered it. By the time the police arrived at home, 31 hours had passed since the neighborhood heard a scream, piercing the rainy night. Officials sent paramedics to the scene because they weren't for sure that it was a death. Maybe Karen had just had a stroke or fallen and hit her head. They entered the house through the back bedroom door. Karen was laying in the hallway and had been beaten and stabbed several times in the neck. She had bloody handprints on her. There was blood all over the house, windowsills, curtains, walls, carpet, and on the bathroom tile. But in the bathroom, there was an important clue in the blood, a bare footprint. Karen didn't have blood on her feet, so that print must belong to the killer. A killer who didn't have shoes on. Interesting. Oddly, Karen had a t-shirt on, but she also had a lingerie over the shirt, like the killer put it on her before raping and murdering her. Later that day, Anita and another friend went to the house to clean. They didn't want David to have to see the gore. Do you know that being a crime scene cleaner is a real job? You don't really think about it, but police don't clean up crime scenes after. Anita had to stop working. It was too upsetting, and there was still blood in the house when David arrived home. Then Anita returned to the apartment she used to share with Karen. And before we dive into the investigation part of this story, we'd like to remind you to give us a thumbs up if you like a video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification button to be notified of future videos. So back to our story. The prime investigator in this case was Sergeant Larry Tosi. Police began canvassing the neighborhood and interviewing possible witnesses that same day. They couldn't believe how many people had heard her scream. The lights were off when police, police arrived at the scene, but there was nothing knocked over. How do you carry out this brutal attack in pitch dark? They had to have a light on. Also curious was the fact that Martha Berkowitzki saw the door open after Karen's death, 
but before police found her body. Peter Cumble also said the door was unlocked when he came by that day, but by the time police arrived the next day, the door was locked. Seems like the killer had come back to the house and locked the door. Maybe he realized he had left a loose end. A few days after Karen was discovered, her autopsy results were in. She had been raped and tortured. She had dozens of stab wounds, but her cause of death was a slit throat. And she had been dead for more than a day when the neighbor found her. Now police were tasked with finding Karen's killer. They inferred that the killer had left out the back bedroom window because of the blood on the sill and curtains. But they weren't sure how he got in. No sign of forced entry. So common sense says that Karen let her killer in. Did she know them? They collected prints and hair samples from at least 10 men, but there were two main suspects that the police focused on early. Peter Cumble and David Mackey. It makes total sense that David Mackey would be a suspect. Police usually start with people closest to the victim and then work their way out. But David had a pretty good alibi. He was more than 1,300 miles away at a work conference in Rhode Island. But investigators actually tested whether it was possible for him to catch a flight to Florida, kill Karen, and be back in Rhode Island by the time of the next conference. Event, I should say. It was possible, but it didn't seem likely. And credit card records show he only purchased tickets for one flight. Police also asked David if anything was missing from the house. He wasn't really sure since he was still moving in, but he thought that a white lace teddy was missing. He remembered Karen purchasing it, but it was no longer in the house. Was it taken as a souvenir? Creepy. And that points to a possible sexual motivation. But ultimately, there was no evidence linking David to the crime, and he was cleared. Remember that Peter was the man who left a note on David's car after Karen's murder. He identified Karen's body along with Anita, and while he was talking to Police Sergeant Tosi, noticed that Peter had a scratch on his hand. Did Karen give him that in the struggle? It was George Lewis the boyfriend of Glenda Harness who had reported seeing Peter leave that note on David's car. Police wondered if maybe Peter had done that to give the impression of innocence. And then there was that note, no signs of life. I bet Peter regrets that word choice in hindsight. Anita caught a ride with Peter up to Albany, New York, where Karen's funeral was to be held. Peter was taking a planned vacation in Boston. The sergeant called Anita while she was in Albany to ask where Peter was and if she noticed the scratch on his hand. She said Peter was in Boston and that she had in fact noticed the scratch. It dawned on Anita that Peter was a suspect and she was horrified that she had just ridden from Florida to New York with, the, with possibly the killer of her friend. Once Peter returned from vacation, he went to the police station to be interviewed. Remember how the note mentioned that he, that he something he wanted to give to Karen? He said it was a reggae tape. Karen loved reggae. He claimed that he did not notice the broken glass, but police weren't really buying that. I guess I'm thinking that if the killer came back and locked that door, is it also possible that he broke the glass then? I don't know why the killer would do that, but maybe Peter didn't see the glass because it wasn't there. And Peter was supposed to have dinner with Karen that night. He thought David would be there, but that wasn't the case. Police wondered if he had a romantic relationship with Karen, unrequited or otherwise. Peter gave police finger and footprints. His girlfriend told Peter to get a lawyer after that police interview. Smart woman. One thing I know is that you should never speak to police regarding a crime without an attorney, even if you are innocent. Actually, especially if you are innocent. 
Innocent people get convicted of crimes they didn't commit more often than police would probably like to admit. But we have a new suspect. Months later, in December 1984, Gulfport held a farewell party for a worker who was leaving. At this party was Marie Messervy. She was a bus driver in Gulfport. While at the party, Marie told a sergeant at the party that she had heard Karen scream that night. What's important about this is that Marie lived outside of the two blocks that police canvassed. This was the clue that really broke the whole case open. What Marie said directly contradicted what the neighborhood watch captain and firefighter George Lewis had told his friends the police. He said it was a faint cry, but if Marie heard it blocks away, how was it that George hadn't described the scream as loud? He had his garage door open and was much closer to Karen's house after all. But for the sergeant, the idea of George being involved was a hard pill to swallow. This was his friend. Friends don't lie, right? Okay, that's kind of funny. You know, you get the Stranger Things reference? Come on. Police obviously wanted to ask George about this new info, and he agreed to an interview. But he didn't show up at the station. Police finally interviewed... George again in January and administered a polygraph test. He was failing the test, and he continued to describe the scream as faint. But now that now he said that he had seen a tall man with red hair in Karen's front yard. Why hadn't he mentioned that detail before? He said he was afraid because the man knew where he lived. Police decide to investigate this new story, or humor George more like. Anyway, the sergeant and two other officers tested George's vision at night from the same distance that he claimed to have seen the man. George can't describe the man at that distance. Bottom line, he's lying. Either there was no man, or he was much closer to Karen's house than he did. Or than he said, excuse me. More contradictions came out. First, George had not seen Karen that day. Then he says he had seen her washing dishes in her kitchen window. Sergeant Tosi continued to visit George, and George's stories continued to change and just made no sense. In March 1985, George agreed to another polygraph test. Now he says not only did he see an intruder, that he spoke to him. George said the man threatened to kill him if he told anyone that he had seen him. If you're keeping track, George has placed himself in his garage, in his driveway, in the street, and in Karen's yard the night of the murder. And George was shockingly failing another lie detector test. George was now an official suspect. A polygraph administrator asked him if he had killed or raped Karen. He denied any involvement, but the test said otherwise. I'm not the biggest fan of polygraphs. I believe they're pointless, and I still think that. But this time, George was definitely lying. You won't find this in the original reporting on the case, or at least I never saw it in the original newspaper articles from the St. Pete Times, but police started asking the neighbors if they had seen any prowlers like the red-headed man. Some of them had. There were reports of a man looking to people's windows. One woman saw a man watching her through her window. He ran away, but not before she got a good look at him. He was a red-headed man. Have I mentioned that George had red hair? Well, he does, and that's who this man or who this woman said was spying on her, the captain of the neighborhood watch. Police took prints and hairs from George. After jumping through many hoops and dealing with subpar technology, 
The police sergeant had a fr footprint image that he could compare to his suspects. He submitted the print along with George's to a forensic expert. It was a match. 30 points matched. It was his footprint, no doubt about it. You got some explaining to do, George. He has a new story, though. Now he did go into the house. He went to investigate after hearing that scream and saw Karen lying in, lying in the hallway floor, but only, only wanted to help her. But once he clo uh, was close enough to see that her throat had been slit, he panicked and fled. You know how police hold back information as a way to try and catch culprits? Like information that the public wasn't told, so only the killer could have known that? Well, the detail about her cause of death being a slit throat wasn't released. And even if you want to believe his story, he wouldn't have been able to tell that just by seeing her body. She was covered in blood and police couldn't determine the cause of death without an autopsy. For one final nail in George's coffin, we have to go back to the lingerie issue. Karen was found only in a t-shirt with a lace teddy over the shirt. And David reported that a white teddy was the only thing he could see was missing. Turns out that George Lewis had been having an affair with a woman. She came to police to say that George gave her a present. You guessed it, the white teddy. It was too big for the woman, but it was just Karen's size. I should probably mention here that David always thought George had a thing for Karen. And it's reported that he had told people that he wanted to talk Karen into participating in an orgy with him. I think what happened is pretty obvious. George wanted to have sex with Karen and waited until he knew that David was out of town to make his move. Did he plan to murder her from the beginning, or did he become enraged when she rejected his advances? George Lewis was arrested in March of 1986, two years after the murder of Karen Gregory. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sexual battery, sentenced to life in prison. George fought the conviction tooth and nail, and he even convinced the Florida Innocent Project to help with the case. But George remained in jail until his death in 2015. Well, that was longer than I expected it to be, but it didn't feel right to leave details out. I think you really have to look at the totality of this case to understand it. But in the end, Karen Gregory's life was taken by someone who obviously thought he was entitled to her in some way, and that's awful. Her friends and family still mourn her death, and David sold the house in Gulfport. I mean, I don't blame him. Let me know what you think about the case, and let me know if you have any suggestions for future cases in the comments section below. And, of course, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, and if you want to help make the channel even better, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them, and hopefully take this show on the road one day. I mean, we'd love to record episodes from the Cecil Hotel in California, um, the site of OJ's murder, uh, true crime cases all across the country. We'd love to do. And hey, perhaps one day we can take it international. But as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, Buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleeps.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.